week I came across a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon strip that does a good job of summarizing the point of view of Ecclesiastes. In the first couple of frames of the cartoon strip, Calvin was swinging on a swing and a playground bully came by and told him to get off and as you'd expect, Calvin did not comply. In the last scene, you find Calvin has been removed by the playground bully from the swing and he's sitting on the ground and he said, it's hard to be religious when certain people are never incinerated by bolts of lightning. (laughs) The preacher in Ecclesiastes resonates with that. Throughout this book of Ecclesiastes, he's been pointing out things in the world that don't make sense. And he's been even explaining how it's, it's hard to follow God in a world where there is no justice. A couple of weeks ago, when we looked at the first part of chapter 8, the preacher led us to think about the challenge of submitting to authority in this world, and especially when that authority is unjust. And he told us that if we live in such a world pursuing righteousness and wisdom, it's no guarantee of a trouble-free life. Well, today in the rest of chapter 8 and in chapter 9, he's going to point the finger at two more problems. We could call these the problem of righteousness and the problem of wisdom. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to put them in two questions. The two points of our sermon are two questions. And the first question is, how do we live in a world where righteousness doesn't matter? And then second, we'll look at how do we live in a world where wisdom doesn't matter? So kids, if you grab the children's listening guide, those are the first two blanks, righteousness and wisdom. How do we live in a world where righteousness doesn't matter? And then how do we live in a world where wisdom doesn't matter? To see this first issue, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we'll read verse 10 through 15. The preacher says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Now I know this may seem like a random collection of proverbs, but we do see, I think, a theme in here of this juxtaposition of righteousness and wickedness. The preacher is pointing again his finger at this question, why doesn't righteousness seem to matter? And his first exhibit in verse 10 is, why doesn't righteousness seem to matter in the context of worship? These wicked people have gone in and out of the sanctuary and they're praised and they are buried just like the rest of mankind. 
with no, no seeming consequence? Where is judgment? Why wasn't there any accountability for these wicked, hypocritical worshipers? They appear, they appear to be able to do what they want to do with, with impunity. Life goes on. Righteousness doesn't seem to matter. Then we read this in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There's no righteous response, no righteous consequence for evil, and then evil is encouraged. And then in verse 12, he takes as a given the fact that many sinful people, very sinful people, seem to live very long, prosperous lives. He says the righteous are treated like the wicked, and the wicked are treated like the righteous. doesn't seem to matter. Now, it's clear when we read these verses, the preacher is frustrated with this state of things. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. There's supposed to be a, a consequence for wickedness. There's supposed to be justice. The wicked aren't supposed to get away with it. To a certain extent, I think we all share that same kind of righteous indignation to one degree or another. There are, there are evil things that we see, and it really bothers us when the people who are evil get away with it. But before we sort of give in to our righteousness, I think it's worthwhile to stop and look at the other side of this coin. Aren't there times where we're tempted to believe that right, righteousness and wickedness don't really matter? Aren't there times where we're like these hypocritical worshipers? We put on a show. We show up at church. We go through the motions. We say all the right things about Jesus. We pray. And yet we don't really mean any of those things. We pray over the meal. And with the next breath, we lash out at our siblings or our parents or our kids. We go through the motions of devotion to Christ while harboring unconfessed and unrepented sin. And we can do all things in a double-minded way, and people think we're pretty good Christians. We can talk the talk. Our lives don't seem too out of whack. And we can convince ourselves that we must be okay. Things aren't that bad. And unrighteousness doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Who among us hasn't presumed on God's patience? We indulge in some secret sin as if God doesn't know what we're doing, as if we won't face Him in judgment. I mean, deep down in our bones, we really feel what the preacher describes. Judgment, that's far away, but the pleasure this sin promises, I can have that right now. And so we watch the way our neighbors spend their money, and they seem to be happy. Nothing seems to be happening to them in terms of lightning bolts, so we join in. Or maybe we hear the way our political enemies lie and manipulate and use the media and seems to work for them. So shouldn't we use the same tactics? That's just being savvy, right? Or maybe we've gotten used to giving in to some sinful way of feeling or thinking or speaking. And over time, we convince ourselves that those things aren't all that sinful. 
Maybe when we were younger in the faith, we thought those things were a bigger deal. It bothered us more when we were anxious or angry or lustful. But now I say to myself, you know, I was immature to make such a big deal of those things. Those are just kind of tiny things. God doesn't want to hear me struggle with those things all the time. It's tempting to believe that because God is patient with us, that we must be okay. That righteousness and wickedness are no big deal. We begin to think that our sin is not sinful. Do righteousness and wickedness really matter? It is tempting to live like they don't. Like they don't. And we need to recognize why it's tempting. Our hearts are naturally bent towards sin. So to go back to our question, how do we live in a world where righteousness doesn't seem to matter? But we, we often respond to that situation unrighteously. So the second half of verse 11 told us that. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil because sin goes unpunished. We use the apparent state of unrighteousness as an excuse for more unrighteousness. Down in chapter 9, we'll see a similar verse. Verse 3 in chapter 9 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness, as in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. You could say that this reality of the sinfulness of humanity is in the background of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. One big reason why this world is so full of vanity, it's so difficult to understand, it's because people, God's creatures, have turned their back on their good and gracious creator. What's more vain and, and hard to understand than that? Than that we should have turned our backs on God. And what's more, when our creator responds to our sin with grace and patience, and so that he delays the punishment that we deserve... We see God's patience as permission to sin even more. This is true for people who have yet to come to Christ for salvation. But because of indwelling sin, it's true for Christians sometimes. We live as if righteousness doesn't matter. The preacher is pointing out that we live in this kind of world. But not only this, he's emphasizing our unrighteous response to unrighteousness. That's a, that's a helpful thing to realize, that there is unrighteousness, and then there's a righteous way and an unrighteous way to respond to it. We sin, now are we going to respond sinfully to our sin, or righteously? I think one of the most helpful things you can do as a Christian is to consider, what's a righteous response to my own sin? So when I witness something unjust in the world, what's a righteous response to that? Do you just get indignant? Do you look for someone to blame? Do you give up? And then when I consider my own sin, or maybe the sins of people kind of in my tribe, how do I respond to that? Do I make excuses for my sin or my friend's sin? Do I look the other way? Or... Am I driven to humble confession, confessing my sin to God, repenting, turning away and turning to God for forgiveness? 
Do you understand the difference between a righteous response to sin and an unrighteous response to sin? It's fair to say that the preacher is sympathetic to our plight. If you just look at the world in a superficial way, it makes sense that you might think that it doesn't really matter whether you are righteous or wicked. The righteous end up getting punished sometimes. The wicked end up seeming to prosper. The preacher is struggling right along with us. And he's leading us to ask the question, why should I seek righteousness when I live in this world? This world where righteousness doesn't seem to matter. Part of the preacher's answer is to fear God. We see that in verses 12 and 13. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Notice that the preacher makes a confession here. Despite all that he's witnessed under the sun in his search for wisdom, despite all appearances, he confesses, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. He's explicit about it. But it will not be well with the wicked because he does not fear God. So again, this kind of is in distinction from all of his observations. This is a confession. He's confessing his faith. Yes, hypocrites are praised. Yes, the wicked are rewarded. Yes, the righteous are punished. Yes, justice is slow. But the truth is, it will be well with you if you fear God. So in the face of, a, of an evil world and in the face of our own sinful response to that evil, God calls us to fear him. God calls us to trust in him. This sounds almost like a, a throwaway verse, just a couple of mentions of the fear of God. But I want you to see how sort of earth-shaking it is to think of the fear of God in this context. The fear of God is one of these ideas, I think, as Christians, we sort of have to learn and relearn our whole Christian life. Because just the word itself, fear, is confusing, right? It might be right to say that true fear of God begins with a, a kind of fear, a kind of being afraid because God is a judge and he judges sin. But that far from summarizes all that it means to fear God. So we do start by recognizing God made us and, he, and we are responsible to him. But true fear of God leads us to faith. True fear of God leads us to worship. I've been reading on and off a book by the theologian Michael Reeves, who describes the fear of God in his book, Rejoicing and, uh, Rejoice and Tremble. This whole book is about what it means to fear God. So I want to read you a, a paragraph there about what it means to fear God. He says, This trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the sheer intensity of the saint's happiness in God. In other words, the biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of joy that is most fitting for believers. Our desire for God and delight in him are not intended to be lukewarm. As our love for God is a trembling and wonder-filled love, so our joy in God is at its purest, a trembling and wonder-filled, yes, 
fearful joy. For the object of our joy is so overwhelmingly and fearfully wonderful. We are made to rejoice and tremble before God, to love and enjoy him with an intensity that is fitting for him. Normally, our joy in God is cold and tarnished, but as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we become ever more fearfully happy like our God. The book argue, uh, in his book, Reeves argues that the Bible uses the word fear in the fear of God because it captures the intensity of how a worshiper should react to an infinitely good and gracious God. There's kind of an analogy between the, that visceral feeling you get when you're terrified and the visceral feeling of a worshiper in the presence of God's goodness. God's goodness should make us sense something great and magnificent and earth-shaking. It's especially helped to consider that, that visceral feeling, the fear of God, in this case, because living in a world like the preacher describes can easily make us cynical and apathetic, right? That's our response to things. It's just kind of shrug and like, well, whatever, some people succeed, some people don't. It doesn't really matter whether you're righteous or not. No. The preacher wants us to, to confront the fearfully loving God. A God who is infinitely good and merciful. The God who made us. The God who calls us to himself. The preacher wants us to look upon God in all of his glory and to worship him. To fear him. The right way to respond to this fallen world is to fear God. So if you know yourself to be sinful, if you know yourself to have excused your own unrighteousness because of the unrighteousness you've seen, then the call here is to repent, to turn away from your unrighteousness, to turn away from your unrighteous response to unrighteousness, and to come to God. To see him in all of his goodness and glory, which is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. When you consider that God became man and dwelt among us, that Jesus willingly took on flesh to live in this evil world, that he, the righteous one, was treated as wicked for our sake, that should make you tremble. That should make you repent. Say, Jesus, take my sin. Thank you for dying in my place. We fear God by looking to Jesus, who shows us the infinite goodness and justice of God. And we confess it will go well with those who fear God. It will go well with those who look for Jesus, look to Jesus. It doesn't mean we escape every trouble, but it means in the midst of trouble we have an anchor that we can hold on to. The right way to respond to this fallen world, the right way to respond to a world where it appears righteousness doesn't matter, is to fear God by looking on Christ. Now I admit, in this verse 12 and 13, there's a lot of confusing things when it says that first the one who doesn't fear will prolong his days, but then in verse 13, he says he won't prolong his days like a shadow. And I have no idea what it means. Uh, you can make a good guess that maybe he's talking about life with God in eternity. So those who fear God, they'll live with God forever. 
but those who don't fear God will, will die and be separated from God, from God's love. So that's possible. But it may simply be that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to help us to see that things aren't always as they seem. It may seem to you that righteousness doesn't matter. It may seem to you that the wicked live forever. But that's not true. It will not go well with those who reject God. It will not go well with those who reject Christ. But it will go well with those who fear the Lord. So what about you? Are you apathetic towards life? Do you have a kind of, I could, I could leave it or take it attitude when it comes to God or righteousness? And if your life isn't marked by a, a trembling and rejoicing worship of God, then what's missing? The preacher calls us to fear God. That's how we respond to a world where righteousness doesn't matter. The preacher also in this section calls us to enjoy life. We see that in verse 15, and I'm going to kind of pass right by that right now because we'll talk about that more under our second point. But we should see that these two ideas are related. You could say that enjoying life is an application of fearing God. Because when we fear God, we see him rightly. And when we fear God, we respond to him as our good creator. And so that means we can take joy in all that he's given. As I said, we'll look at that more in a minute. So the preacher has been helping us struggle with this question. How do we live in a world where it seems like righteousness doesn't matter? And the answer is fear God and enjoy his gifts. And so now he turns to a related question. How do we live in a world where knowledge and wisdom don't matter? So I'm going to read verse 15 of chapter 8 all the way through the end of our passage today, which takes us through chapter 9, verse 12. And just to prepare you, we're going to meander all over the place in these verses, but just stay with me and we'll try to make sense of them after we read the passage. So again, we're going to start, uh, I'm sorry, verse 16, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, all the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness, as in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have perished already. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. 
for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Again, I know this passage is filled with some twists and turns, but what we see here is a, a clear overarching theme that questions the virtue of wisdom. When we look at the first verse, uh, the verses 16 and 17 that we read, the preacher says he's done the hard work of applying his heart to know wisdom, to look on the earth and to look at all the works of man. He's even looked at the works of God, he claims. But despite all this, here is his verdict. Man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Trying to figure it out is pointless, he says. Even those wise men who say they're wise, they don't know. The preacher is doubtful that wisdom even exists here. That's his first salvo in the argument. Next, in verse 1 of chapter 9, he starts off with a, a very wise biblical statement. The righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hands of God. Well, praise the Lord for that. But then he throws in this complication. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Whether you're going to receive love or hate from God, who knows? I mean, that, that seems to shatter the bedrock of faith itself, right? Surely, this is something we can cling to. The righteous will receive love from God. And so once again, we're focused to ask, well, what good is wisdom? If wisdom was supposed to lead us to God, what good is it if we can't be sure of God's love? Next, the preacher illustrates the vanity of wisdom and knowledge in verses 4 and 5 when he says that it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. That's kind of as much as he can muster. Yeah, it's better to be alive than dead, but just barely, right? For the preacher, the dog is not your cuddly, admirable companion, right? He's kind of a trash eater that sweeps up the gutters, maybe. So it's barely better to be a living dog, better to be alive than dead. At least the living know that they're dead, know that they will die. The dead don't even know that. So we got that going for us. We all know we're going to die. That's the extent of our wisdom, it seems, the preacher is saying. It's almost like he's making fun of knowledge. And then the final two verses we read, we read are, the, are some of the most challenging because they seem to contradict wisdom over and over again. So in, in the last few verses where he says that, that um, this, uh, the race is not to the swift, each time he says this, we kind of get a contradiction of something we read in Proverbs. So let me just read a few examples of these. Proverbs 28.19 describes the wise man in this way. Whoever works, with, works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows with the worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. But, but, but the preacher says, bread is not to the wise. 
Then Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, The wise man honors the Lord with his wealth and with the first fruits of all his produce. Then his barns will be filled with plenty and his vats will be bursting with wine. The wise man will be rich. But the preacher says that riches are not to the intelligent. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 tell us that a man who remembers God's teaching and commandments will enjoy a long life full of peace. He'll enjoy the favor of God. But the preacher says that favor does not come to those with knowledge. Finally, throughout the book of Proverbs, we see then an image of a snare used to describe the fate of fools. Thorns and snares are the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. That's Proverbs 22.5. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Proverbs 25.25. But the preacher says, everyone is going to fall into an evil snare. To kind of sum all that up, verses 2 and 3 show us that the wise still die. Whatever benefits wisdom has, it doesn't deliver you from death. The same event happens to everyone, no matter how much wisdom you've gained. So we have this sort of wholesale attack on wisdom here. What good does it do you to acquire wisdom if you're just going to end up dead? How do we live in a world where wisdom doesn't matter? To begin answering that question, I think the first place to start is with this apparent contradiction between Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. I think the best way to grapple with this is to say that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are meant to interpret each other. You know, it's possible if you read the book of Proverbs to almost begin to think, well, I'm kind of given the formula here. I'm given the, the key. If I just follow these steps, I'll have a long and prosperous, trouble-free life. So if we only had the book of Proverbs, that was the only book of the Bible that we had, we, we might go in the direction of kind of creating a formula for life. Do this and be blessed. We might create the prosperity gospel. And I still probably think we'd be missing some verses in, in Proverbs, but, but that might be the, the general place we go. But the book of Ecclesiastes forces us to see that the, the Proverbs aren't promises. They aren't prophecies for my specific life. We can't read the Proverbs as if they're like Christian fortune cookies. Proverbs don't deal with every specific situation and tell you the outcome or exactly what to do. It takes wisdom to interpret the Proverbs, right? Because we have Proverbs that tell us to answer a fool and other Proverbs that tell us not to answer the fool, and they're smashed right together. So it was Ecclesiastes is presenting us with a, another aspect of wisdom to help us interpret Proverbs, and Proverbs help us with providing us wisdom to interpret Ecclesiastes. One thing Ecclesiastes shows us, though, is that wisdom shows us the limits of wisdom, in this world, until the day God returns through Christ and makes all things new, no one escapes suffering, no matter how righteous or wise. And for those who have read the Bible, this is no surprise. The Bible is full of wise and faithful people who experience great suffering. We can read of Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the heroes of the Old Testament. They experienced hardship. 
Now we know they were sinners and sometimes they suffered because of their sin, but oftentimes they suffered in the service of God. The wise and the righteous will suffer. And these men all died. Of course, we also have to think of Christ. He was the, the righteous and wise man par excellence, the only perfectly righteous and wise man that ever lived. And his very obedience required his suffering. It was because he was so obedient and wise that he became the suffering servant. So looking at it this way, I think, helps to reveal part of how we are to live in a world where wisdom doesn't seem to matter. We live humbly. It's possible, you see, to pursue wisdom in a proud way. And we've all met people like this. We've probably all been people like this. So think of a, maybe a couple. They have done everything the right way. They've gone to church, they've worked hard, they didn't rack up credit card debt, they were good parents. Now their kids are respectable adults. They've got beautiful grandkids. I mean, you should just see the, the pictures they took on their vacation to Florida this year with all their family and their Airbnb. They look beautiful. But secretly, they look down on people who haven't done it the right way. They looked down on those people who, who wasted their money or, or didn't make the right career choices or who, who screwed up their kids. Secretly, they think they deserve credit for their successes. Isn't that true of us? We can tell you all the reasons why things are stacked against us, but when we think of our successes, we can, we can tell you the reasons why we, we did it the right way. We pursued wisdom in a proud way. We believe we've, we've done the right things and deserve the right results. The preacher wants us to see your wisdom will not protect you from the evil snare. It's coming. So live humbly. Don't put your trust in your own wisdom. There's no hope there. Of course, as we say this, we can see there's lots of ways that the preacher in Proverbs agree. Don't the Proverbs tell us the same thing? Lean not on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. In all your ways, acknowledge God. The Proverbs and the preacher of Ecclesiastes both call us to fear the Lord. There is a way to trust in wisdom that perverts wisdom into making wisdom by itself a savior. But true wisdom should turn our hearts to the only wise God. True wisdom leads us to dependence on God. It's only faith in God that will sustain you when the evil day comes. When life comes crashing down around you, your good and great, kind and gracious God, he's a fortress. He's a rock that you can cling to. And so is, is your faith in God or is, in your, is your faith in having made all the right choices? Are you tempted to turn God's wisdom into a kind of formula, into a technique that will lead to a successful life? The scary thing about that is, is that it may work for a while, maybe even a long while, but not forever. Don't be deceived by your successes. Remember that an evil time falls suddenly. 
Everything will be okay until it's not. So we respond to living in a world where wisdom doesn't seem to matter by living humbly and trusting in the God of wisdom. And this leads us to the second way we live in a world where wisdom doesn't seem to matter. Not only are we to live humbly, we are to live joyfully. Look at verses 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. That last phrase, going to Sheol, is just a, a, par- a way to say you're going to die. Sheol is the place where dead people go. Not commenting on you're not going to heaven or hell. It's just the, it's kind of the in-between state. So we, we have brothers and sisters who've died in the Lord. We would say they're, they're not in their final destination because they're not in the new heavens and new earth yet. They're still in a time of waiting. So we go to Sheol when we die. The preacher, though, issues some commands here, which is kind of unusual for the preacher. He says to go, eat, drink, enjoy your wife, work. The preacher grounds, though, what he says here in God himself and in the coming of death. In other words, enjoy these things because God has given them to you and because one day you won't have them anymore. You can only do these things on earth while you're alive. And so we live joyfully by seeing God as creator, the creator who made us and who gave us good gifts. We live joyfully by seeing God as the creator who made us and who gave us good gifts. We can trace this theme of God being the good creator all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So if you remember when he he made the garden, he planted it, He gave them every kind of tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Why did he make it pleasant to the sight? He could have made them ugly shrubs. He he gave them beautiful trees that were good to eat, every kind. He made them. He approves of these things that he made. And wonder of wonders, in God's mercy, even though we sinned against him, we didn't ruin everything. Despite our wickedness and our unrighteousness, God continues to give us good gifts to enjoy in this world. He's good. And so the preacher says here, food and family and feasts, these are all gifts. Your work, even though it's marred by pain and toil and thorns and thistles, it's still a good gift. You were made for it. And so we receive these things as gifts, and we look to God as the giver of those gifts for how to enjoy them. See, it's really important to to think of them as gifts because we can never separate the gift from the giver. When we do that, we pervert and we misuse or we abuse the gifts God has given. And this is where wisdom should guide us. In a world where there doesn't appear to be any wisdom or or wisdom doesn't matter. Wisdom is real and it should guide us to God and to see his good gifts. If you're a teenager here, I want you to pay a special attention to this truth. 
This is one of the most important and foundational truths of, of being a follower of Jesus. You need to see that your life is a gift from God. And you need to look to God to understand how to use that gift. The world is telling you that your life is your own to use as you please. And the world even goes further than that. It, it almost says you have an obligation to figure out what pleases you and to use your life that way. And if you don't do that, you're not really human. You're not really alive. And the world says that you need to look deep inside yourself to discover who you are, to discover your sexuality, to discover your identity. But what I want you to see today is that there is no joy or hope down that path. You were made by God. It's God who gave you all that you are. It's God who gave you your sexuality. He gave you your ability to work. He gave you your interests. He gave you the ability to enjoy food and drink. And so the question is, how will you receive those gifts? Don't look to yourself to figure it out. Don't look to your peers to figure it out. Look to the one who gave you those gifts. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You belong, body and soul, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. These are the, the, the profound truths that must ground our faith. And of course, it's not just teenagers that need to hear this. We all need to see life is a gift. And it's a gift that we enjoy on this earth for only a short time. Now, this isn't to deny the, the coming blessings of life and the new heavens and new earth. Those are real. But the way that we get ready to live with God forever is right now by fearing God and enjoying his gifts. We prepare to enjoy eternity by living today before the face of God. When we step back and consider the context, I think we have to admit this call to joy, it sounds like strange advice. I mean, the preacher's gone to the fire hydrant, he's cranked that thing wide open, and we're just being overwhelmed with an assault on righteousness and wisdom. And in the middle of that, we're supposed to take a moment and smell the roses, enjoy life. It sounds almost like a head-in-the-sand approach to the problems the preacher's pointing out. But what other counsel is there? When you realize that you're powerless, when you realize that you're unrighteous, when you realize that all the knowledge in the world can't deliver you from your plight, where else can you go? The only answer is to humble yourself and to turn to God, the giver of life. This isn't a throwaway answer. This isn't a stop and smell the roses answer. This is the profound hope that we desperately need. The only thing we can do in the face of this perverted world is to look to God who gives life. Now we who are alive today on this side of the cross, we can look back and see how Jesus navigated this fallen and cursed world. And that's not an advantage the preacher had. Jesus lived in joy and in the fear of God. One of the things you'll hear at a wedding is that Jesus blessed the wedding, the blessed marriage by attending a wedding at Cana in Galilee. 
And he not only attended, right? He provided the best wine so the feast could go on. Jesus enjoyed his life, but it was a short life. And he used those short days to scrupulously attend to obeying his father, which meant saying and doing all that the father had given him to do. So his days were short, and yet he used them to live in humble fear of the Lord. And he he did so trusting that the injustice and the foolishness of the age would not have the last word on his life. That's how Jesus navigated a world in which righteousness didn't seem to matter and wisdom didn't seem to matter. But in doing so, in living his short life in this evil and foolish world, Jesus reveals the earth-shaking majesty of God. He died, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the word of God made flesh. And he puts the wisdom of the world to shame by his obedience and by his love. By dying on the cross for sin, Jesus paid for our sins And he made a way for us, despite our wickedness, to know and worship God for all eternity. So how do you live in a world where righteousness doesn't seem to matter? Where wisdom seems useless? Look to Jesus. He shows us the glory of God. Look to Jesus and tremble at the mercy and righteousness of God. In Christ, we can live in hope and joy, even in the midst of a world that's turned upside down by sin. And because of Jesus, death will not have the last word on our lives either. For Christ's sake, live humbly and joyfully in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, we all confess that we have failed to live in the fear of you. Our worship of you is too often lukewarm at best. And so, Father, we ask for your forgiveness and your help. Show us your glory in Jesus. Help us not to be content with going through the motions Expose the ways that we may be using difficult circumstances to justify sin. Father, I pray you would help us as a church to do this together. That we would encourage each other. That we'd humbly confess our sin to each other. That together we would fear you. And that we would encourage each other to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.